Hello, and welcome to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI Meetup Groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Ewan Oglethorpe, and I'm going to be guest hosting today's interview with Tyler Radford, the Executive Director of Humanitarian OpenStreetMap. Welcome, Tyler. To get us started, would you like to introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what Humanitarian OpenStreetMap is? Sure. Really happy we get to spend some time with each other this week in Geneva. So for those of you listeners out there who haven't heard about Humanitarian OpenStreetMap, we're working towards this really seemingly simple problem that a lot of people don't know even exists in 2022, which is if you go to many places in our world, take out your smartphone, pop it open, open up your favorite map app, in many places, what you'll see is essentially a gray background or a, a brownish color background, depending on which app you're using. And not much else. Sometimes you might see a road there. You might see one or two dots on the map, but it's very, very unlike what we're used to seeing in the US or in many countries in Europe. And often these are the same places that are missing this map data where uh, that are also heavily prone to disasters, crises, and we are working to solve that issue. So we are working on this challenge of missing data, missing map data. And our goals over the next few years are to mobilize 1 million people to map an area home to 1 billion people. So about a seventh of the world's population. And that, that's our estimate of the number of people who are living in places that aren't very well mapped and that are also at high risk of disaster or crisis. And so that's the challenge we're working on. So it's, it's both a technology challenge, but also a challenge of building a movement and building this global network of people who care about data. I think what you guys have is such a fascinating mission and I think it, it's so tangible and so directly impactful um, to so many people around the world. In terms of these areas that, that don't have much coverage on maps is the reason simply because they're generally you know, lower income and for the commercial map providers, there's just not interest for them to go and produce those maps or why is it that they're left out? Right. So I think we can all speculate as to why that might be. And I think a lot of the times you're absolutely right. The reason that those places aren't on our favorite map apps is because they simply haven't been prioritized. And we know that a lot of the work that goes into creating digital maps is really tough. It's really complicated. It relies on AI, relies on satellite imagery and relies on a lot of, uh, a lot of resources going into engineering. And choices need to be made in terms of priorities. Where do we focus? Which geographies do we focus on? And so many of the big uh, commercial map providers are making those really hard decisions every day. And many of them are working to expand coverage into lower income countries. But that's where we decided to start. So that's where we're starting first. We're starting in, in, the, in the countries that are facing the biggest humanitarian challenges, the biggest just risk factors. So. We're taking sort of the opposite approach in terms of where we start with the challenge. And you feel like there's kind of a double whammy in that you can assist with humanitarian responses and there's also like a long-term benefit of having more areas also being mapped. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, that, that's right. So one of the nice things with open data projects, as, as you know, is that we often create data for one purpose, but it could be used for something completely different tomorrow. And sometimes we don't often know what those uses are all the time. So many times we work with a local NGO or a 
international humanitarian organization that said, just to give you an example, for example, we, we want to carry out a vaccination campaign or immunization campaign in, in this location. And we need to know in order to make sure we're covering the right number of children or the right number of households, we need to know how many households there are in that area. And using maps and in our particular, the tool that we use is OpenStreetMap, we can get really good approximations of that, how many residential structures are in an area, for example. And it's a great use for that use case. And our partners say, okay, we can now use that to carry out our vaccination campaign. And the great thing is by making that data publicly available, we often see other organizations adding more detail to it. So contributing to the next level of detail or using it for something else one year or two years down the line. So that's really our focus is to create kind of this base data once, mobilize people to help to do it and make sure that those people have the knowledge and the tools to keep the data up to date and invite other organizations into the mix to um, keep it um, progressing and get fresh over time. I've got an interesting question too. So I used to work at UNICEF in Geneva. Uh, they did satellite imagery and we'd keep all our data at CERN. You know, a lot of the data sets actually lived in CERN, but where does OpenStreetMap data live? Like, where is that? And what does it look like on a sort of a technical level? So at the end of the day, the OpenStreetMap project, I mean, it aims to be a a global data repository of sorts. Historically, I, I won't get too much into the infrastructure because there's others on our team who could talk more intelligently than I could on this. But in a, a nutshell, in the old days, servers, we had physical servers in the UK. And now a lot of that has moved, moved to the cloud. And, and there are, so that that's kind of an ongoing process. But the I think the really interesting thing with OpenStreetMap is that we have sort of people and effort going on in so many countries at the very, sometimes at the very, very local level, at the individual village level. And those efforts are all contributing to one common data store. And that's what we find makes it actually usable for the humanitarian sector. Ewan, before I give you back the mic here, I used to be based in San Francisco. I think mapping for a lot of people is this Google car driving down the street with all these cameras on it. But what does that look like in a developing country? Should I get my mobile phone and I'm on my bike, take a picture of this rural road? Or what does mapping look like to a local person? Absolutely. So we want you to do all of those things. And, and we, we love um, it's sort of experimenting with new approaches. But we've done everything from mounting, uh, mounting a camera on front of a bicycle and riding down the street to uh, if you know what a, a bajaj or a tuk-tuk is, we, we have a 360-degree camera mounted on, on top of one of those in Dar es Salaam. So that's like a little three-wheel vehicle. And we've been driving that all around Tanzania over the, the past five or six years or so. And so mapping for us often starts with, it it's often feels a, a bit techy. It often starts with satellite imagery. And we make that satellite imagery available to remote volunteers all around the world. They use that satellite imagery to digitize what they see. So they're manually tracing what the outlines of roads and buildings on, on those images and creating essentially digital vector data based on those. But for me, yeah, the more interesting part is what you mentioned, Brent. So sort of that second step in the process, which is getting out there, uh, walking around, riding around, sometimes running around, driving around. And people 
contributing their knowledge of what exists in their neighborhoods, in their in their villages, in their cities. So for me, that's what makes it real, and that that's where we get that added level of detail to the map. So at the end of the day, like maps sometimes and often start with satellite imagery, but the real interesting data is coming actually from people's heads, what they know about their communities and their locations. Even for example, sometimes we're often, I think many of us are living in places where we might walk down the street and we see uh, the name of the street on a sign. And many of the places we're working, the names of places don't appear on signs or, or aren't publicly visible, but people know what they are. So it's a matter of actually talking to people and helping them to contribute that really, really rich knowledge and do, doing it as part of this open, what we call an open mapping process. That's so cool. And one last question, you know, I, I'm quite a fan of IOTI, the International Aid Transparency Initiative, and there's a lot of information fields and a lot of geographic information fields, and you can really drill down. And it's kind of true. You could actually collaborate in, in sort of data sharing where you have the local level streets and then the actually what the street is called in a native native language and what the slang for the street is. And it's just kind of cool how you can triangulate down things to mapping. So. That's super cool. You remember, I, I remember one of our community members was working in rural Uganda and Democratic Republic of Congo. And one of the projects was um, to essentially source information on local village names. And so our project is really similar to Wikipedia in a lot of ways. So if you go on to Wikipedia now, the the data, we, we, I think we can all agree, right? The, the content is just so much richer than it was, say, 15 years ago, because so many people have been contributing to the project, but it's still underrepresented in a lot of sectors or fields. So many cities and towns and villages are in Wikipedia, but many of those villages in, say, DRC don't appear in Wikipedia. Um, and so I, for me, we're doing something really similar to what Wikipedia is trying to do which is source some of that missing information about our physical world. And so one of the projects that one of our community members carried out was to actually go to the villages and collect the local name of that village, but also ask a really simple question, what, how did the village get its name or what does it mean in the, in the local language? And also recorded, recorded that. And sometimes that can be really enlightening because there's sort of this whole story behind it that that doesn't exist anywhere except in people's heads right now. Um, so it's sort of this oral history. So those are the kinds of projects that I think are really interesting because we're, we're able to capture some of that information that people want to contribute and choose to contribute. And of course, that's, that might be something we want to talk about, like uh, this whole thing around mapping in difficult areas, like what do people feel is appropriate to contribute to the map? And that's what we, we also put that at the center of what we do. So we want people living in the places that we're focusing on to be the ones mapping and to be the ones deciding what goes into the map. So I think digitizing a large part of the globe that hasn't been digitized yet in, in terms of mapping is super interesting, but do you come across issues with privacy or security? In particular, I had a discussion with a colleague earlier this week about the location of health facilities in Ukraine, mm -hmm. and that data isn't data that they share it publicly because it can be used, of course, in military operations to be targeted. So not necessarily that exact context, but in general, do you come across any of those issues of privacy or security? 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. We're really, really conscious of that. And, and in particular with Ukraine, I've been thinking a lot about this topic. So we, yeah, just to give a, a little bit of background on this, I mean, HOT has always worked in challenging contexts, in contexts, in, in places that are sometimes definitely affected by many natural hazards and sometimes affected by conflict. And so we are a humanitarian organization. We're a relatively small organization, but we are guided by humanitarian principles. One of those being do no harm, right? And so in the work that we're doing, we're really conscious of asking ourselves a question, could the data that's being made open through our processes potentially cause harm in the places where we're working? And one of the really challenging things, if you take that to Ukraine, one of the really challenging things was, was that there was a lot of questions, right, around who was using which data for which purposes. And we couldn't, it's really hard to definitively answer that question is, what are the potential harms that could be caused um, through this data? So we made a decision pretty early on to basically not do any additional data collection in Ukraine because of the active conflict. And we are informed by what are, so with the, to take a step back with OpenStreetMap, many countries around the world have what we call an OpenStreetMap community, which is essentially volunteers who contribute to the project and often are lo- sometimes loosely knit volunteer communities, sometimes formal NGOs. And the Ukrainian OpenStreetMap community essentially said, please do not map in Ukraine during this time of crisis and conflict. And we, HOT as an international organization, are guided by that, are the, by our communities, by people living in the, in the places we're focused on. And so we made the decision early on to not create additional data for Ukraine. We are publishing, we continue to publish the existing data that was in OpenStreetMap, so the base layers like buildings and roads and populated places, that's still being published to HDX and has had quite a few downloads since since the beginning of the conflict. But we're really careful to be, we're not adding any additional detail. We're not demarcating specific facilities that could be potentially targets, any of those things. And so one thing we are looking at is what might be possible to do outside of the immediate conflict area, so in some of the neighboring countries. So just to clarify for listeners, can you explain the difference between hot OSM and OSM and what, if you know, like what percentage of the content on OpenStreetMap has come from you guys versus other contributors around the world? Definitely. So one of the kind of magical things about OpenStreetMap is that there's are there's now been over, I believe it's something somewhere around 4 million registered users. And 1 million of those have actually done, had made, have made edits in OpenStreetMap. So we know at least 1 million people have edited the map, which is really, really amazing to think about sort of this grassroots project that was formed, you know, around 2006 now has a million people contributing their local knowledge. And HOT's, HOT's role in that is one, we're one of many, many organizations. So. One of the other interesting things about OpenStreetMap is it's now a project in which some of the biggest companies in the world are using OSM as core to their products. So if you look at uh, Facebook, all the maps that you see on Facebook are derived in in many countries in large part from OpenStreetMap data or directly directly displaying OpenStreetMap. Same for Microsoft 
and many Microsoft products, Microsoft Bing Maps, for example, OpenStreetMap, Snapchat is OpenStreetMap based. So many of uh, private sector companies are relying on OpenStreetMap data and actively contributing to improve it. So we're, we're kind of playing in this really complicated landscape where you have individual volunteers in dozens of countries up to, you know, pretty significant private sector corporations. And so our role is to a, a bit of a, a bit of a bridge between actors. We really want to make sure that we're mobilizing people for, you know, our focus is specifically on the humanitarian side of things and on focusing our contributions in a way that are meaningful and can actually do some, some good. So sometimes that means partnerships with the private sector. Sometimes that means linking up volunteer groups to NGOs or government institutions who, who will use the data. So we see ourselves as sort of the, the organizer and the bridge between individual volunteers and um, NGOs who can use the data on the ground. This all, um, even though a lot of the contributions are from volunteers, of course, this has a cost. OSM has to pay for its hosting. You guys have core teams you have to pay and whatnot. Can you talk a little bit about the finances of your organization and OpenStreetMap? Yeah, definitely. So OpenStreetMap Foundation is a, a separate organization that we work really closely with. So that foundation maintains their core part of their mission is to maintain the technical infrastructure, maintain the the hosting, maintain some of the core tools around OSM, some of the edit, data editing tools. And our organization is really focused on really heavily on the people side of things. So mobilizing community contributors and supporting the growth of these, what we call OSM communities in um, 94 countries. And so that means sometimes like providing small grants, it might mean providing training. We also help to, we, we, one of the core products that we provide is called Tasking Manager. And that Tasking Manager breaks up an area to be mapped into a grid and allows multiple volunteers to work in that grid. They each take a square and work on their little, um, little square and using satellite imagery, digitize what they see um, in that area. So we have a lot of sort of interesting activities going on. And in terms of funding, we have many different organizations who've said, we want to contribute to this vision of a more equitable and more complete world map. And so a couple of years ago, we were really fortunate to be selected as a TED Audacious project for 2020. So we were one of eight organizations who received funding from a really open-minded and really forward-looking group of philanthropists. And so we, we, as part of that, received funding from seven foundations and individuals who are sort of supporting our core work through 2025 to, to make this happen. And then in addition to that funding, we work really heavily through partnerships. So we have a number of private sector companies who we collaborate with to build better map data in certain countries. And we have also worked with some of the big development players like the World Bank primarily, who work with us on not only building the map, but building capacity around using open geospatial data in certain locations. So it's both a philanthropy model and a sort of fee-for-service model. Yeah, I think it's good to have a mix of yeah. things, right? Not put all your eggs in one basket. I remember when I was in Geneva, you know, back in um, 2005, 2006, Google Earth had 
just gotten started. And it seems like Google is really dominating the mapping space. And, you know, Apple ended up having their own sort of mapping interface and their mapping partnerships. And do you have a pitch to companies like Apple who maybe are less visible in the mapping area in terms of collaborating with nonprofits? Yeah. So if you, if you drill into the details of, if any of you are iPhone users, if you open up Apple Maps and go into the, uh, the sort of the, the license text, which is, you, you can, you might be a little hard to see at first, but you dig into that, you'll see OpenStreetMap is one of the sources for Apple Maps, in addition to some other, a number of other data sources, depending on the country. So, you know, Google, I think, has been around the sort of open, open source and open mapping ecosystem for quite a while. We don't see ourselves as a competitor to Google because we're looking, we're obviously much, much smaller, but we're also, we have different interests in mind, right? So what we're trying to create is not necessarily a consumer facing app per se. We're trying to provide a really valuable data service to the humanitarian community and the development community. And so we just work in really different ways and the technology that we're working on serves very different stakeholders. But I will say Google's helped out a lot and jumped in in certain places. Like they, there was, I don't know if you remember Brent, they, I believe it was called disaster maps or crisis maps that Google did. And they, they released satellite imagery for OpenStreetMap volunteers back in the day. And now recently released an open buildings data set for all of Africa. So our teams have been talking about how we can collaborate on those kind of initiatives going forward. I think where in, in terms of the AI space, we've, you know, when Google produced that open buildings data set, it's really good to see those kind of initiatives. And at the same time, we want to make sure that our work around AI is including Africans, including people uh, that live in the places that are being mapped as in the loop. So it's a human in the loop kind of approach. And so that's what we're working with Google on now is to talk about how we can ensure that data is being, and products are being informed and co-created with people living in the places that are being mapped. So we wanna make sure that's always the case. Yeah, there's so much um, going on innovation-wise uh, around natural language processing and you know, yeah. mapping and natural language processing are kind of go hand in hand because you need to translate you know, what you're seeing and articulate it and then store the information and process the information. So it's really cool. Just going on another angle, have you always been a, a map guy or did you just fall <laughs> into hot? I mean, it's always been an interest. I'll give a, a shout out to my wife. So my wife is the <laughs> geographer in the family mm -hmm. and um, I didn't really realize this, I think, until a few years into the relationship, but she, um, <laughs> or maybe it didn't sink in. I, she's probably, she probably mentioned it to me early on, but so she actually studied, has a degree in geography, and I'm, I'm not a map guy um, by background. I'm not even a GIS. So sometimes I say I'm not a GIS guy, but I do have the IS. So I, I do have an information systems degree um, back in the day, but I, I worked, my background is uh, working on kind of big technology projects. I was a consultant in the private sector and worked in UN headquarters, UN secretariat in New York on, on major technology projects. For me, there's a couple of turning points in, in my career, and I was thinking back on this the other day. I really love tech, but what I love more is the potential impact that it can have on people's lives. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to make a bit of a pivot out of sure working only on technology projects, but on tech that could really 
change things for people. And I remember back in 2010 when the Haiti earthquake happened, I didn't know much about crisis mapping or disaster mapping and actually was getting it kind of got its start after the Haiti earthquake. And I was involved then as I saw some of the work that was happening. I was at Columbia University at the time and Patrick Meyer, he was doing some really cool stuff with this thing called Ushahidi and setting up a map for Haiti that pinpointed where people sometimes were trapped under buildings or needed help. And I remember that kind of light bulb moment, like, wow, individual volunteers outside of Haiti could actually play a real role in the response. And that's when I, I thought, okay, I need to I, I start do, doing some more thinking around that. That was in 2010. And I ended up, after I graduated from Columbia, I ended up working for the American Red Cross. And we, at the time, New York was recovering from Hurricane Sandy, which was one of the big biggest disasters ever to um, affect the U.S. And I remember we were working with, I, I was working overnight in a shelter and one of the biggest shelters that was housing a thousand people basically sleeping on cots. And overnight, I remember this older gentleman coming up to me and saying, you know, I had my Red Cross vest and badge on and all that stuff looking very official. And, and an older gentleman came up to me and said, do you know what's happened to my house? I, here's where I live. What's, what's going on? Do you, do you have an update on the flooding, the extent of the storms? And I couldn't answer the question. I didn't have these basic, these basic data. And I had thought back to, you know, 2010, the earthquake response. And I'm like, we, we're still missing these real basics, like information, getting information to people affected by crisis or disaster is critical. And we're seeing that in Ukraine today. What are people, what are people cravings? Oftentimes just basic information on where to go, what services are available, what choices should they make? And I don't, I think 10 years later, we haven't fully solved this problem of like getting the right information to the right people at the right time. That's why I'm in this game. That's what I really love about the work is I, I'm optimistic about it. I feel like we are making, we've made some inroads into it over the past 10 to 12 years. And and, you know, there's kind of a, going on a bit of a tailspin from your question, but I think that's why, for me, that's what makes it interesting. You know, I feel the exact same way. And I think what your sentiment is what's guided my own career and life and trajectory. And I see in 20 years, I see AI, artificial intelligence, technology, able to finally realize those things that we wanted to do 20 years ago in terms of information sharing and making the invisible visible. You know, whether it's a humanitarian organization that just needs a new tire for their truck or whether it's just information on a destroyed building. And do you, are you optimistic about AI and do you, do you see the ability to do these things looming on the horizon? And sorry, one thing to add as well is how do you compare and contrast the state of technology and AI in the humanitarian sector today versus the private sector? I know that's a huge question. Just something thrown to it. Yeah, maybe on that second point first, I think the great thing is, is that there's a lot of crossover nowadays. So there's less of a clean division between the humanitarian world and the private sector. Like we have many of the big private sector companies contributing to our work in OpenStreetMap. So Facebook, Microsoft, we're working with them on using their AI and machine learning approaches for good in OSM. And I think that's a, that's a wonderful thing, right? We kind of realized as, as hot, right? We're not going to build, our sweet spot is not going to be going to be build, building giant engineering teams that are competing with the likes of those larger organizations. What 
value we can offer is keeping humans at the center. And we do, we do, we are a technology organization. We do have an, uh, a small engineering team, but a big part of the role of that team is to make sure that humans are in the loop in everything that we do. And we're often, so in our project where we collaborate with those larger companies, our OpenStreetMap, the OpenStreetMap contributors that are in the hot community are the ones validating training data that's produced by AI. They're the ones feeding input back into the models and at the end of the day, like one of our goals with AI, and I am optimistic about this part is this is, this is a really simple goal, but I think we're getting there, which is let's just save people time and refocus their energy on stuff that's actually more interesting. Like for example, uh, historically our volunteers trace squares and rectangles and lines on features in a satellite image. And some, and I don't mean to discount that work. It's been very, very critical to our mission. And some people love doing it. I love doing it myself. It's kind of, it's in, in a way, it's kind of meditative in a sense. But it's yeah, not. How, how, <laughs> how often do you contribute to open? I, I wish I could do it a lot more. I'm <laughs> more of a, a sporadic contributor uh, a lot of times when I'm traveling. So that's when I get a free moment sometimes. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so in a nutshell, like we'd love to make our, our volunteers have this incredible knowledge about the places they live and work. And what I think is more interesting from our side is how can we get that knowledge out of people's heads and into a digital data store? That's not necessarily going to be solved by AI, but I think what AI can do is take away some of the basic stuff that's sucking up people's time right now and kind of re, um, reimagine what interesting things and interesting value that humans could provide. So in, in terms of mapping, that's the, that's kind of the value that I see going forward. And hopefully beyond getting beyond the map in terms of crisis response, humanitarian response, I'm really optimistic about, you know, what's being called predictive analytics or forecast-based financing or anticipatory action, which is, can we get more, can we get aid to the people who need it faster and sometimes hopefully before a crisis occurs? Can we anticipate where things are happening and mitigate the impact by either helping people to make the right decisions like early warning before a disaster or get money to people, get financing to people to take some action in, in the hours or days before disaster or to do that so that they can recover more quickly. I'm optimistic about those, those kind of things. So just to connect the dots uh, for people listening, it takes a lot of time to map a community or villages or whatnot. And if you're responding to a crisis as a humanitarian organization and there's no maps, then you have to wait until somehow you have information on that or, you know, uh, a, a community has, has provided, has or a community has provided mapping on OSM, et cetera. So is the idea with what you're talking about with this audacious project, for instance, that these communities or villages are already mapped. So when the crisis occurs, you've already saved a week or days or whatever of mapping and you can act sooner. Definitely. And so in the past, we called this missing maps. So our goal was to fill in the missing maps. So at a, at a basic level, yes, there's a data gap and we're working to fill that data gap. And I think the possibly the more interesting part is how do you make sure that data is fresh and kept up to date over time? It's not just about creating a map once. Like we live in a very um, dynamic world. Things are changing all the time. Um, 
new construction. Sometimes places are, there's places and buildings affected by a disaster. There's physical damage. Buildings are destroyed. New, new things evolve, like new roads are built. And so we want to capture the current state of our world and make that data open and available. And so the current state of our world is constantly in flux. That's the really tricky part. So the approach we're taking, and, and I hope it's a good one, is to make sure that people living all around the world know about OpenStreetMap, know about projects like oh, any open data project, but projects like OpenStreetMap, and have the basic means to contribute. That means in the past, you've needed to have a, lap, a pretty decent laptop and know how to look at satellite imagery. Uh, one of the things we're working on is like bringing in, making sure that an additional 1 million contributors in 94 countries are able to partake in the effort and contribute their local knowledge. That means we need to actually, rather than get more high tech, it's almost like we need to get more low tech and lower the barriers to entry. So it might mean rethinking some of our contribution methods. Like we're still working on going from desktop to more mobile contribution methods, making sure that people those mobile tools run on really basic smartphones and that people can, I think maybe another application of AI in our sector is what I call hints. How can we provide lightweight hints or prompts to people to contribute knowledge as they go about their day? And, and I think we haven't fully solved that yet, but it's one that we're thinking a lot about. Rather than making mapping this whole separate thing that you do, how can we just integrate it into daily life? As you ride around your community, as you walk around your community, how can you provide like micro snippets or bite-sized chunks of insight into your world? You know, we like to end our interviews by asking our guests to envision a futuristic AI application and to describe it. And I, I think you've actually described yours maybe four times already, mm -hmm. and it's so cool. And maybe you could just take us through what you'd love to see somebody have yeah, I mean, one of the, at its core, we, we want data not to be a, a problem anymore, right? We, we want missing, this so-called missing maps problem to not exist. We, we, we don't believe data should be a cause of human suffering or lack of data should be a cause of human suffering. So at the end of the day, like we, we believe community members can be through the process of mapping and through the process of contributing to, to open data, global open data projects like OpenStreetMap, people uh, become often more aware of the basic risks in their community. So through mapping things like waste is, you know, waste sites in their community or where are drains, where is there like flooded or are clogged drains, sometimes become more aware of little micro actions they can take during their day. So I guess that's what I'm hopeful for is that the data that's being produced is not just used by big humanitarian actors, but community members themselves see value in the data and, um, become more aware of risks and take action on, on those risks ahead of, ahead of disaster. And so ideally in terms of AI, I mean, you can imagine a lot of roles that AI might play in that, but it, I see it more as these kind of micro hints or um, suggestions or things that people might not even view as AI, but are kind of integrated into apps that people are already using on their phones. But at the end of the day, for us, it's it's more about it's it's more about the human impact rather than the rather than probably some crazy new uh, application. It's it's maybe just making things really simple for people, and 
there is one in thinking about it there's a personal wish that i have on this which is more ai enabled travel like i feel like we're, we could make a lot of progress there and that's as travel started to pick up again i was doing quite a lot of travel booking myself in the past few weeks and it's still quite a cumbersome process of needing to search multiple sites and um the sites don't really know i wish they kind of knew my preferences a bit more so like that I don't like to fly at certain times or I prefer to connect through certain cities and that I can't afford certain hotels. Like let's keep it in, in a certain range. I, I, I would love to just be able to do natural language speech and say, I, I want to travel here to here and stay in this kind of a place. And then I'm provided with a suggested uh, arrangement for that. That would be my wish on the personal level. You know, you and uh, you're here interviewing Tyler and you're, you, you guys are actually both in Geneva. So do you want to give a shout out to, we just have a couple of moments left to shout out to what you're working on and what your hopes are in terms of collaborating? Yep. So we're here in Geneva at the Humanitarian Network and Partnership Week. It's in person for the first time in a couple of years with COVID. And it's my first time attending in person. And it's really nice to see all these virtual faces. It's actually really strange because I have this huge like mental catalog of faces that I see on screens. And now I see these like 3D people walking around. I'm like, oh, wow, these people do actually exist. So I've, I've personally enjoyed my, my time here chatting with, with folks and attending sessions and presenting at sessions. A few themes that have come up has certainly been anticipatory action. As Tyler has mentioned, data has also been a big one. And yeah, I've, I've, um, I've enjoyed it. How about you, Tony? Definitely. I mean, so the event we're here for is called Humanitarian Networks and Partnerships Week. And part of the, the purpose of this is for networks, the, the various complicated networks in humanitarian action to actually come together, meet with each other and um, within networks and across networks. And so you and your organization and, and HOT are also members of the Humanitarian to Humanitarian Network. So. For me, I, I share your um, sentiment there. Like it's been really great to actually connect with other members of that network, see what everybody's doing, and have these conversations that could be the start of collaboration and actually working together on things. So I've really enjoyed that. And you also find out people sometimes are a lot shorter or taller than you expected. It's you're, usually shorter. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, can I ask one last question? Please, you go ahead. For those listening, as you started in the private sector, now you work in the humanitarian sector. Do you have any advice for people who want to kind of get started doing data type work mm. in the humanitarian world? Mm. I'd love to. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about that, actually. Mm -hmm. But I I think maybe I'll, I'll start first from the cynical angle to get that out of the way. So I, <laughs> I've, I'm then, and then but I'm there's a lot of really good things you can say, too. So the cynical side of things is I still encounter this perception a lot today where folks that have been working a long time in the private sector say, you know, I've reached a point in my career where I want to do some good. And so I'm going to switch to work for a nonprofit. And in a sense, I did that myself. So I'm criticizing myself in, in a way, but I feel like I, it also took me multiple years to make that transition. And I think what some people don't realize is that the nonprofit space is actually the same as working in the private sector, only 10 times more complicated. And the reason for that is our stakeholders are, we're often not selling. So the person or stakeholder that we're serving is often not the one funding us. So there's not that direct exchange that you would have with a, a typical private sector company, exchange of goods or services for, for funding. 
we're often funded by a third party who's then helping us to serve an, another party. So we also have boards of directors. And in our case, we have many volunteers that actually govern our organization. So it's super complex. And I, I would, my cynical side says, just because you've worked in the private sector doesn't mean that you can now jump to do the easier thing in the nonprofit space. This is actually really complicated. Now, the, the positive side to that is there's, there are actually a lot of skills from the private sector that are just as applicable if we do exactly the same thing. We don't have a profit motive, but a lot of the functions in our organizations are the same as you would find in, in um, the private sector. Sometimes we call them, instead of sales, it might be partnerships, but uh, like we use different terminology for them sometimes. But I would, I think for anybody looking to enter this space, the, the really good news is that there's so many different pathways you can take if you're interested or working in data or information management or GIS that aren't really well advertised. Like it's, it's really hard to know, okay, in, in a big organization, I'm, I'm a data person. What roles could I play? And there's, there's tons of roles, like everything from information management to some, to geospatial, which is sometimes linked with that, sometimes not to like, logistics work so you could be working working directly sort of on the ground in in the fields you could be doing research type work you could be doing applied if you're a software engineer there's uh, many organizations now are hiring software engineers or forming partnerships with those organizations so i think maybe, I, I don't know what my first advice would be uh, other than to say maybe spend some time talking to those that are working in the sector and understanding all the, the huge variety of different roles that are available to data people. I think data is now, we've gotten to the point where most organizations are actually seeing data as kind of like critical to executing on their missions. And so in most humanitarian organizations now where there is like a, a unit or um, multiple units of people working on data in some way or another. So talk to some organizations, see what's out there. and then. Um, Definitely encourage you to, if you're coming from direct from university, there's, there's lots of ways to like, just help out an organization. Don't encourage unpaid internships for those of you who can choose not to do that. But, and I'm speaking to the organizational leaders out there, like your interns, but uh, there's lots of ways to like do fellowships or just support with research or try out a few things and, and see what, see what's working for you. And I, I welcome that from my own organization too. Thank you so much. Normally we ask our guest host to close the interview, but since we've kind of ping-ponged balled around this, who's mm -hmm. talking? Tyler, would you like to close the interview? Is there anything profound you'd like to say in closing and then say this brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to close? I'd just like to say it's such a pleasure to actually be here in the same room with you recording this you and, and Brent, it's, it's great to uh, also be able to interact with you, albeit virtually. So thank you so much. And this officially brings this edition of Humanitarian AI today to a close.